0: Hallelujah. Father, we confess this morning for these songs to be true that we have sung. It is the Spirit who must open our eyes to see. We, Lord, who have experienced your amazing grace, were once blind as the hymn goes. We were once lost. We were once dead, in fact, in our transgressions and sins until the resurrecting power of the Holy Spirit of God awakened us to newness of life, opened our eyes to see and gave us the incredible blessings of salvation. We can relate to the servant Hagar in the wilderness, who thought she was for certain dead and her child with her. And then the one of whom she called the God of seeing, she named the spring, the well of the living one who sees me, opened up her eyes yet again, and she was able to see that wellspring of water that you had prepared for her, sufficient to sustain her in her wilderness wanderings. We, like Hagar, have received the wellspring of living water in Jesus Christ our Lord, which has given to us salvation in the wilderness wanderings of our sin. And we, like her, Lord Jesus, desire to express to you the glory that you are so worthy of. We pray even this day as we open up your scriptures to see the glory and the treasure that you have buried therein, that our hearts would be stirred to worship That the consistency of our walk with you would be motivated for more faithfulness. That we would be moved, Lord, to be inspired and encouraged to share our faith with others. And that the joy of our salvation would be our strength as we behold your word revealed. You who are the God of seeing, would you open up our eyes to see the glories of Jesus Christ revealed this day in all of Scripture. And in revealing him, that you would transform us into his image even as by the Spirit of God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, we open up the Scriptures to Genesis 21. What a great gift and privilege it is to have the Word of God at our fingertips. And I just praise the Lord for gathering us in these moments that we have together, to direct our attention to His Holy Scripture. So turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 21. In a moment, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word. The title of this morning's message in our Genesis series is Shield and Reward. The passage is Genesis 21, 22 through 24, but the title comes from Genesis 15, verses 1 and 2, where the Lord, in a vision to Abraham, reveals Himself to the patriarch, the father of the faith. He says, I am your shield, and truly he reveals to Abraham his reward will be great because of the covenant promises that the mighty one, the God who is eternal, Abraham praises at the end of this account today, the God who is faithful to conquer Abraham's enemies as he had just demonstrated in Genesis chapter 15, this one whom the Lord has bound himself in covenant to Abraham with, the Lord Almighty Yahweh, the I Am that I Am, the Eternal One, the shield, He is the one who, if Abraham follows, will, be, will reveal to him great rewards of godliness. Thus, shield and reward is the title. The aim of this morning's message is to realize the faith-building power of the covenant son. There is a marked shift in Abraham's heart, and his demeanor, and his convictions, and his faithfulness in our text today from one of fear to one of faith. We're going to ask ourselves the reason for that change and find the answer indeed in the fulfillment of God's promises through the covenant son. And later we'll seek to apply that in our own experience. So with that said, would you stand with me out of reverence once again for the reading of God's holy word? And consider in your ears today, listen as the word of God is read to you from Genesis 21, verses 22 through, 20, uh, through 34, this is the word of God. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal kindly or will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. Verse 24, "...and Abraham said, I will swear." Verse 25, "...when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servant had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today." So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham sent set seven ewes, lambs, of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, "What is the meaning of these 7 ewe lambs that you have set apart?" He said, "These 7 ewe lambs, you will take from my hand, and this may be a witness for me that I dug this well." Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because they both of them, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. This is the word of God. You may be seated. We open this morning with our worship text from Psalm 112, which we recently had a sermon on as well. Psalm 112 could be summarized under this phrase, the rewards of godly fear. It lays out sort of the poetic ideal, if you will. These are blessings that tend to follow those who fear the Lord. And among them, we read today, "...the one who greatly delights in the Lord's commandments will enjoy an offspring that will be mighty in the land. A generation of the upright will certainly be blessed." Psalm 112.2 declares, "...furthermore, wealth and riches are His. Light dawns on Him. It is well with Him. He will be remembered forever." There's a certain confidence about him, we read of in verses 7 and 8. He will not be afraid of bad news, verse 6, the righteous will never be removed. Verse 8, his heart is steady, he will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has extra resources from which he can distribute freely to the poor. And his testimony, his legacy endures, in fact, his righteousness endures forever, according to Psalm 112.9. Now, this is sort of the ideal set of situations and scenarios and blessings that follows those who fear the Lord, laid out in Psalm 112 in kind of wisdom language, wisdom literature, if you will. It strikes me today, though, that the bridge between Psalm 112 and Genesis 21 is profound when we see many of these blessings attending Abraham. Was Abraham's legacy great in the land? Certainly was. Did God bless his posterity, meaning his children, and the generations that would follow him? Absolutely. In fact, the phrase becomes a figure of speech in Scripture, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is to communicate that God had, was faithful and is faithfully preserving through the course of history His seed of promised covenant line through the patriarchs of old, through that messianic lineage, all the way to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And even beyond Abraham, the description of our relationship with Jesus is revealed in Hebrews and other, pl- and other places, as a relationship with the legacy of Abraham. We enjoy the covenant bond with Abraham, who was in covenant bond with the Lord, when we are grafted in as members and saints in the household of God. Truly, the Lord, in these terms, was Abraham's shield, protecting him from his enemies and his reward, giving him the fulfillment of the covenant and the blessings that would follow. And so he is with us. Psalm 112, 16 announces, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, or verse 1, and greatly delights in his commandments. The song continues, as we've touched upon briefly, expounding via the poetic ideal the rewards of godly fear. Abraham's account in our text today illustrates this idea of the blessed man in real time. In Genesis 21, after all, we see a foreign king, Abimelech, Seeking favor with Abraham himself, and acknowledging the status of Abraham, the patriarch, and the renown of Abraham, that is, his legacy or his reputation, his fame and influence. After all, it is increasing exponentially, we could say, in the land. This further echoes the theme of Psalm 112, when Abraham's legacy is now assured, In the same chapter, chapter 21, the blessed son, the promised one, even though Abraham is 100 years old, is received in the arms of Sarah and Abraham. Yes, Isaac, the covenant child, is finally theirs. There is quite a contrast that uh, we can see between this encounter, suffice it to say, there's quite a contrast in the relationship between Abimelech and Abraham after this event occurs, and their meeting before it occurs. And so that will be part of the theme and exploration of our text today. Abraham's legacy is now assured through the birth of the covenant son and the blessings that attend the God-fearing. And Abraham is proof of this. He's now receiving the blessings of the Lord. And there's a contrast, incidentally, between his encounter with Abimelech now and the occasion of their first meeting, which happened in chapter 20. So this brings up a question, what made the difference in Abraham's life and in his testimony of faith? Between the fearful Abraham that entered into the land of Gerar and first met Abimelech in chapter 20, we read of before in prior messages, and the confident Abraham that now makes a covenant in chapter 21, what could account for this change? Well, the context of our passage today and a few others answers along the way. Incidentally, another thing to notice that first encounter between Abraham and Abimelech is occasioned by the idea of seed. In other words, if Sarah were to become Abimelech's wife, as seemed circumstances threatened to do that because Abraham wasn't truthful about who she really was, if indeed Abimelech had taken Sarah to be his wife, then the seed of the Messiah would have been jeopardized. The covenant line would have been compromised. Thus, that first encounter, God intervenes in preservation of the seed. The second encounter in our text today between Abraham and Abimelech involves a conflict regarding the land, specifically a dispute over a well. And it's interesting to note that this well, which is eventually named Beersheba, which means the well of the oath or the well of seven, could be either one, perhaps both, is in view That becomes significant geographically to mark the southern border of future Israel. So even this well is significant in the second meeting, and of course this has to do with the land, the seed and the land. These are covenant themes in Genesis. God has promises through Abraham's lineage that he will give him a son who will have a son who will have a son, etc., until eventually the Messiah is born. And God has also promised him a place, a habitation, a dwelling, this will take place in symbolic form in the land that his future lineage will enter into upon the exodus of God's people from Egypt. And of course, this land is representative of a reunion, a reconciliation, where a holy God meets with sinners when the sacrifice is provided on Mount Zion, and there is that thus that salvation and reconciliation realized in the sacrifice that the Lord provides. These are covenant themes. But they carry through, and sometimes they're more in the background, sometimes they're more in the fore. But it's helpful to notice them so that we can add to our understanding the meaning of some of these accounts. Covenant themes are featured in this way throughout the narrative. And here's a question that is raised by our text, and no doubt troubled Abraham's mind on more than one occasion. Can Yahweh be trusted to secure the promises of the Abrahamic covenant in spite of trials along the way? We find in our text today and throughout the book of Genesis, the answer is a resounding yes. And this yes is punctuated with numerous testimonies against all odds of the Lord's great faithfulness. And our text today is no exception. So let's get into it under this heading. Keys to understand the Abraham-Abimelech treaty. Keys to understand the Abraham-Abimelech treaty. Here they are in brief. And then we'll explore them in some detail. Number one, first key. And this comes from a context all the way back to chapter 14. Abraham in the king's valley. There's other treaties and other interactions between Abraham and kings that precede this one. Going back to chapter 14, and they provide keys for us to understand Abraham and Abimelech's agreement. So Abraham in the king's valley. Major point number two, Abraham in Gerar. So that would uh, begin to track the relationship between Abraham and Abimelech, who is king of Gerar. And then the third key to understanding is Abraham's definitive alliance with the king of Gerar, Abimelech, that we read in our our text today. So first of all, key to understanding the Abraham and Abimelech treaty, Abraham in the king's valley. Turn back with me to Genesis 14. So kids, you remember this? Uh, somebody had kidnapped a relative of Abraham. Who was stolen? Who was kidnapped? you guys remember? Lot. Lot, it's correct. Does anyone know the name of the king who was the leader of four nations that stole Lot and brought him into captivity? Or, uh, does anyone know the name of that king? No, nope? good, good guess. Keterlamer is correct. Very good, down in the front. Extra points for Keterlamer. So to set the stage, Lot had been abducted there was a group of four kings that were making war with, I believe, five. The four kings from the north in this Mesopotamian region come down and they ransack the place. They take a bunch of resources, spoils the war, and among them prisoners, including Lot and his family. Abraham, uh, feeling protective about his nephew and seeking to be obedient to the Lord to provide that covenant protection for his lineage, decides to do something about it. It says in verse 11, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Let me pause briefly to note here. There was a difference between Lot and Abraham. Kids, maybe you remember this too. Lot decided to invest his time and, his, and to find safety in the confines and refuge of the city. Abraham was content to live in tents and wait for God's promises to come true, right? So there was consequences for the life of faith versus the life of worldly compromise. For Lot, his decision proved foolish when he was kidnapped and almost lost his life and indeed lost his family when Sodom and Gomorrah were eventually burned. But Abraham chose a different lifestyle according to God's will for him. And this was a lifestyle of the bigger picture, of looking forward to a city whose designer and builder is God, as Hebrews says. And if that meant in the meantime, being more uh, transient, believing that God will establish His children's children later in the land, he was going to be obedient. And so we see in the nature of how Abraham conducted himself some lessons that help us understand his relationship to others in the land. Notice verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abraham the Hebrew, so this is someone bringing the news that Lot has just been kidnapped in his family, who is living, <clears throat> this, and that says of Abraham, he was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Ashkel and of Aner. And then this kind of parenthetical statement, these were allies of Abram. So uh, young people in my co-op class, we've been going through understanding scripture, talking about narrative. You guys remember one thing we were talking about is listen for the voice of the narrator. When the voice of the narrator comes in and gives you a little tidbit, something to note. And here the narrator, Moses, says, these were allies of Abraham. So we see that Abimelech was not the first king that Abraham established a relationship or an agreement with. No, all the way back at the Oaks of Mamre, Mamre himself and then his brother Eshcol and Aner were additional allies of Abraham. That is to say, Abraham had learned how to dwell on good terms with those who were in the land. But he did so in a different way than Lot did. Abraham was a good example in this regard. And we see something of what you could call Abraham's foreign policy. There's precedent for this type of arrangement between Abraham and Abimelech, going back to chapter 14. And Abraham, though a sojourner, sought to have peace and good relations with those whom he uh, entered into their land, to be on good terms we find some of this evidence in chapter 14. No doubt some of the allies of Abraham might have accompanied him on this quest to free Lot and those who came with Abraham among that band of 318 proved successful and they're able to rescue Lot and his family. And so in this way, in chapter 14, we have a record of alliances that Abraham entered into with Mamre, Eshcol, and Anner. These were all allies. <clears throat> but did Abraham ally himself on just any terms or with just any king? The answer is absolutely not. Abraham turns down an alliance in the same chapter. So we turn over to verse 21 uh, 20, and we read the following. The king of Sodom said to Abram. so after you know, the inhabitants of Sodom had been freed along with Lot and his family, after the Keter-Lamer coalition was defeated, they all sit down for a victory meal in the residence of Melchizedek king of Sodom and or I'm sorry king of Salem and but the king of Sodom another king of the region he approaches Abraham and says the following verse 21 give me the persons but take the goods for yourself in other words as a gift to show his appreciation or something of that sort the king of Sodom offers Abraham all the spoils that had been taken originally by war except for the people what did Abraham say oh thank you no Verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Of course, these allies take their share, he says. So what do we learn here? We learn that Abram, at this time, Abraham is a man of integrity. He will not make an alliance uh, as such. As a man of integrity, he will not make an alliance where strings are attached that will be perceived to dishonor the Lord. So he rejects the offer of the king of Sodom for that alliance. There's application for us from this passage, believe it or not. 2 Corinthians 6.14, and we may never be in a position of civic leadership such that we're considering treaties on a national scale. But the principle still applies. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul tells us, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Or what fellowship has light w- with darkness? Or what fellowship does Christ have with Baliel, another name for Satan or evil forces? In other words, God has called us, like Abraham, to take care to analyze and to, yes, discriminate between relationships. In other words, somebody who is covenant-minded does not love everyone in the same way all the time. I've often used this illustration, but it helps us to understand the particular covenant love of the Lord himself. What do we call a husband who loves every woman he sees in the same way at the same time as his wife? Well, we call him an absolute pervert, philanderer, adulterer, etc., Right? We pile up words to show how unfaithful and how uh, wicked that kind of behavior is because we recognize that there is something exclusive, precious to be guarded and set apart as holy, the relationship between a husband and wife. And how much more our relationship with the Lord? You see, covenant terms are very specific and we are to pay attention to them. God has established covenant terms that required the death of his son And for us to realize that redemption in order for us to be in good standing with Him. The love of God is qualified by the sacrifice of His Son. And it is necessary for that price to be paid before we enter relationship with the Lord. And this teaches us a principle. Be careful about the nature and terms of your relationship. This does not mean we don't have compassion on the world. But it does mean that we are very careful when we're following Abraham's and more so the Word of God example of how to interact in a fallen world. We should not make alliances with Sodom that would compromise the message and the truth of the kingdom of God. Lot learned that lesson the hard way. Abraham was a good example. In your alliances, make sure that the terms are honoring to the Lord. And while we're at it, this is a good measure for a nation too. If you are to compromise your witness as the people of God, By making an alliance with Egypt or Assyria, the people of God did this along the way in the Old Testament, God would bring judgment on them. Why? Because they were trusting in other means to save them by seeking the help of pagans on pagan terms rather than trusting in the Lord their God, who is jealous to be held up as the sole source of hope, assurance, contentment, salvation, and security. These days, we are just as tempted to trust in false alliances, balance of power politics, as I am often wont to say, chariots and horses, but God is calling us to be exclusive in our allegiance as saints, as heirs of Abraham, so to speak, to follow his example and be careful where we invest our hope. So Abraham in the King's Valley allows us a little context and behind the scenes, even in his foreign policy, to help us understand the nature of these relationships. Incidentally, let me give you one more application. I would say that nations in our world today ought to reject money, ought to reject foreign aid from America. Why do I say this? Because the State Department of our apostate and wicked nation has said that foreign money, foreign uh, aid money, is contingent upon a pro-LGBT posture in other nations. In other words, you have to be affirming of lifestyles that the Bible calls perverse, sexual identities that the Bible identifies as blatant, overt sin. You have to be tolerant of these in your society in order for you to be in good standing, receive foreign aid, and to be allied in America. A godly nation would reject the opportunity to ally themselves with the United States of America so long as these are the terms. You see how comprehensive the word of God is? It applies to the foreign policy of nations, and it applies to your relationship with your neighbor. It applies to the terms of your marriage with your spouse, and it applies to the big picture of God's covenant relationships He ordained even in redemptive history past. So just a word on the sufficiency of Scripture. Abraham's foreign policy gives us a little behind-the-scenes look. But there is another relationship that is very insightful and interesting in this same passage. Notice in verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, meaning Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham, Abram at this time by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And notice the verse 20b, it says this, And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, in the order of covenant relationships between nations, oftentimes they took the shape, or they were according to a pattern of a greater authority and a lesser authority. So kids, in the relationship between Melchizedek and Abraham, who is greater and who is lesser? Was Abraham greater or was Melchizedek greater? How many vote Abraham? Let's see a show of hands. Was Abraham greater? How many vote Melchizedek? Let's see a show of hands. All right. Well, Melchizedek, you you won the contest. Melchizedek is correct. You see, the one who pays tribute or ties to another, Hebrews tells us as much, is the lesser party. So isn't this interesting? In this passage, in Genesis 14, Abraham is careful to discern who is the greater and the lesser party. He rejects the, the opportunity to make an alliance with the wicked king, Sodom. But he defers and he honors and he recognizes the superior, superior authority of the priest king, Melchizedek, who is priest of God Most High. This mysterious figure who represents something of the multi-office of Jesus Christ, who himself would be a priest and prophet and king. There's a shadow in the old covenant here of who we really should make our alliances with and so forth. So this is a little background and context. As we see this, we recognize Abraham's foreign policy and who he chooses to make alliances with, covenants with. We see Abraham's sort of vassal status, which means lesser party. And Abraham demonstrates as much in paying tribute or tithe to Melchizedek. And then finally, we've mentioned strengths. We also see a weakness in this text. Notice chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield your your reward shall be very great. And so that's the title of our message shield and reward. Note verse 2. But Abram said, "O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus." So in spite of his virtues, in spite of the testimony of his faith, Abraham like you and I was a sinner and struggled at times. And one of the big insecurities for Abraham was the obstacle of age and death that seemed to threaten, objectively, the arrival of the covenant son. In other words, God has just given Abram, or in context, God has just given Abram victory over all these kings. Then he has to, and you would think that would be enough to get you really confident, right? If God can give you victory over four nations with just 318 guys, wouldn't you feel kind of invincible? But this wasn't sufficient to give Abram confidence, no. He very quickly fell back into his state of concern, anxiety, and fear, because in spite of his victory over the Keter-Lammer coalition, he still had no son. And now he's pushing 100, and this is most important in his life. So the Lord appears to him in a vision and says, Fear not, I am your shield. In other words, death and age, they may feel like enemies too big for you to handle. But notice how I defeated the enemies in war. I will defeat death and age as well. You shall have a son in your uh, later years, in so many words. Abraham, of course, said, Lord, how can this be? What will you give me? I continue childless and so forth. And he still is trying to figure out how this is going to happen. And we see in his life and legacy, attempts through the flesh, namely with Hagar, the maidservant, trying to make it come to pass. So keys to understanding Abraham-Abimelech treaty go all the way back to these moments where Abraham shows his strengths in discriminating in how and who he makes a covenant with and also Abraham's weaknesses. He struggles with fear because he sees that he, his son, the promised son, has not come and he's not getting any younger. Major point number two. And this follows Abraham moving and entering into Gerar. So we pick up on this context in chapter 20. Move over there if you would. Keys to understanding the Abraham-Abimelech treaty. We understand it in context of Abraham's prior relationship or engagement, occasion, his first meeting with this king, Abimelech. We pick up on this in 20 verse 1. From there, Abram journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he uh, sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Hey kids, i got a trick question for you. Was Sarah actually Abraham's sister? No? No. Kinda. Was well, his stepsister. But was Abraham telling the whole truth in this situation? So Sarah was not just Abraham's stepsister. She was his wife. That is correct. So why did Abraham hold back the truth of his relationship with Sarah to this king? Well, this dovetails with Abraham's great insecurity we just read of in chapter 15. Abraham was afraid for his life. He struggled with fear. He thought in Genesis 12, this was a strategy he and Sarah worked out way back in Genesis 12. At that point, he was going to Egypt. He would encounter Pharaoh. He said, you're beautiful. And uh, people will desire you, kings and men of influence and authority. They'll want to kill me so they can marry you. So let's come up with this plan. Let's say that you're my sister to avoid that risk. And so here he is doing it again. This is a policy of fear, is it not? And you see how it goes. Immediately, God intervenes. God came to Abimelech, verse 3, in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, kids, what did God say to Abimelech? Behold, you are a dead man. That is correct. And what if you heard that from God himself in in a dream? Wouldn't that shake you awake? Behold, you are a dead man. So Abimelech wakes up in a cold sweat. God continues, Because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Abimelech, no doubt, rubbing his eyes. What? What are you talking about? To the voice that is coming through in his dream. Now Abimelech had not approached her, and then he begins to take action himself. He calls a meeting with Abraham, and this is the what-gives meeting, right? In Verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called his servants, and told them all these things. The men were very much afraid. Who's afraid now? <clears throat> uh, the ones <laughs> who God said uh, uh, that you're going to be a dead man, and likely this judgment that God had pronounced would affect Abimelech's whole people, in fact. And so that, now they are freaked out. Verse 9. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said, What have you done to us? And now have I sinned against you, and you brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, "Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? So there is a policy of fear that Abraham had pursued, and it put him in a really awkward situation, did it not? Instead of being a light and a blessing to the nations, like he was called to be to the king of Gerar, He disguised who he was, he sought a low profile, he used deception, he did not let him in to the reality of the covenant, and it got him in a bind. And so in this instance, in this interaction between Abimelech and Abraham, it is Abimelech who brings a word of correction to Abraham. A pagan is saying, what in the world are you doing to the covenant man of God? Abraham begins to sheepishly, no doubt, explain why he did these things. And I imagine the longer he talks, the dumber it sounds. Until his voice gets low, he hangs his head and eventually says, I have no excuse. And it's amazing because God uses the prayer of Abraham to save Abimelech from this judgment and to restore the people. Well, that's a little background. Abraham pursuing this policy of fear caused him to cower before a pagan king, caused him to deny or to withhold the reality of his Lord and even his family, thus putting the testimony of the covenant and his own family in jeopardy and landed him in the courts of an ancient king having to answer for his foolish decision. Well, that's way different than our text in Genesis 21, 22 through 24. In this instance, notice verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of the army, said to Abraham, God is with you. And all that you do now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me, or with my descendants, or with my posterity. But as, as I have, uh, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me. And then, verse twenty-five. Notice when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servant had seized. Do you see how the tables have turned? And the first interaction, Abimelech is reproving, that is correcting or calling out, holding Abraham accountable. In the second encounter, it's reversed. Abraham is saying, Listen, some of your guys have stolen our well and threatened our herdsmen with violence. We have we own that well legitimately, we dug it. And before this covenant is signed, we need to make this right. It's a complete turning of the tables. This is a different Abraham. One commentator I was listening to this week said. That's easy to miss until you get the whole context. But then it raises this question. Why the change? A guy who cowered in fear before before foreign kings is now in the posture of authority. In this uh, covenant arrangement, in verse 20, kids, who who is the one with more authority? Is it Abraham or Abimelech? Which one's the greater party? Abraham or Abimelech? What would you guys say? Actually, it's Abraham. Abimelech comes to Abraham seeking his favor. Abraham says, I'll grant you my favor on the condition that you address this well issue. And so the tables have turned. What made the difference? Well, the covenant, the birth of the covenant son. As we uh, turn back in Genesis 21 to verse 1, we find that God fulfilled his promises, and suddenly the man of faith begins to grow in his confidence. Verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Right? Visitation, word and promise, at the appointed time, Abraham, 100 years old, receives as a miracle of resurrection the promised son. Verse 2. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Guys, uh, kids, what did Abraham call the name of his son? You guys remember? What does that mean? What does Isaac mean, you guys? Uh, Isaac means laughter. Very good. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. And, and uh, she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? And now you see the reason for Abraham's growth in confidence. It all has to do with the birth of the covenant son. Abraham, who once cowered in fear, has now encouraged and emboldened because God's promises have come true in his experience. Does this have application to us? When you look at scripture, you see another appointed time, the appointed time for the covenant son. We call this Christmas or the incarnation. That is to say, the son of Abraham, the son of David, Jesus Christ, would come at the appointed time. When we remember the significance of the Incarnation, much like Abraham, filled with faith, upon realizing the promises of God, we as well can have great boldness to stand in a day when our faith is challenged, even by foreign kings. This was true of the apostles in the first generation of Christianity, so to speak. Jesus himself said, you will be taken before kings and people who are in authority don't even... Before you get there, because when you are challenged by what the world would think is a greater authority, I will give you a word and wisdom such that your adversaries cannot oppose or comprehend. We serve King Jesus. Who is greater, kids, King Jesus or President uh, Joe Biden? King Jesus. Jesus. There is a vassal and suzerain relationship between ambassadors of the kingdom of God and even the greatest pagan kings of our earth. And so when we go forth recognizing that Jesus, the appointed Son, has come and that His covenant was fulfilled, we can stand with boldness before any authority, before any claim to authority or person, individual or tyrant that challenges the covenant purposes of God. The righteousness, the promises, the eternal life, And the assurance of God's kingdom come and established in time at his appointed time unto the purposes of his kingdom consummated in the new heavens and new earth cannot be stopped by a wicked administration in this country or any other challenger, principality, power, and authority, or ruler of this earth. I don't care if it's in the modern age with all the technology that 2021 can boast or in the days of Herod, King Agrippa, or Persia, the Medians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Spanish, the British, or any other empire. There's a message in the testimony of Abraham. When you focus on the covenant son, when you remember the fulfillment of God's promises, you have, your reasoning goes like this. If God can raise the dead, should I fear being killed? If God can bring life out of a dead womb, can he cause an unbeliever to be born again? If God can raise up a testimony for himself from a weak and a tribe of just a few people in ancient Israel, can he not preserve his church such that the enemies and the gates of hell cannot prevail against her? This is the message of Abraham. A complete watershed experience happened between chapter 20, the beginning, and the close of 21. And as it turns out, Gerar, was ordained to be the birthplace of Isaac, the covenant son, born to a couple, pushing 100, in Abraham's case, 100, on the nose. And so this changed everything. So what is the incentive for the treaty then? What's the reason why Gerar approaches Abraham? Well, we find it in 22, 21-22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Because of the testimony of God's covenant fulfilled and his promises to Abraham evident to the foreign king, he now recognizes the superior power of Abraham, whose influence and authority is growing in the land, measured by flocks and herds and men in his uh, care and so forth. Yes, but even more than this, the testimony of a sovereign God. So what influenced, what convinced uh, Abimelech, king of Gerar, that Abraham had this status and standing. Well, he no doubt knew of his defeat of the keter coalition, where 318 guys defeated four nations. He no doubt heard, he no, no doubt never forgot that traumatic dream where God woke him up in the night hour and said, you are a dead man. And if the, and I don't know what I, uh, you know, concept of the Almighty Abimelech had, whether he became a true believer or not, but something tells me I almost wouldn't be surprised if he did. Abraham begins to worship publicly right there in his region. And I could almost imagine, if not Abimelech, certainly people from that region, joining Abraham in the worship of the one true God. The one true God who can give a sojourner victory over four nations. The one true God who can give a woman victory. And a man approaching 100 years old, a son, uh, uh, the one true God who can wake you up in the middle of the night hour and say, you're a dead man and you'll be a victim of my judgment if you don't change your actions right now. So that was the occasion. That was the incentive why Abimelech approached Abraham to solemnize this treaty. So that brings up our final point this morning. This becomes a very definitive alliance. There's a change of tone. There's a watershed experience. There's an evidence of God's authority. The covenant has continued to take form and to manifest itself. And God has fulfilled his promises in dramatic ways that even the unbeliever and the pagan are beginning to recognize. And this is the reason for the role reversal. A once fearful traveler now dictates the terms of covenant relationship with a king. Abraham, who was once just a pilgrim, Seeking to keep a low profile so he can escape in the land of Gerar without too much trouble, as now telling the king the terms upon which he will be in agreement with him. And he reproves him, saying, Let's settle this dispute over the well first. And what does Abimelech do? He backpedals, just like Abraham did in that first account. He gives maybe some excuses. He says, I do not know this thing, that, uh, I did not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me. I have not heard it until today. You kind of see him pleading ignorance, backpedaling a little bit can almost hear the desperation in Abimelech, the king of Gerar's voice, hoping that Abraham would not use this occasion to deny him good standing or favor because he knows that this man is in league and union and in alliance with the true God of all the universe. He wants to be on good terms with him. In verse 27, this is what happens next. Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. Again, the tables turn. In the first instance, Abimelech gives the conciliatory offering or the offering of reconciliation. He provides the animals and the servants and the gifts and so forth in that first exchange. But now the reverse again is happening. Tables have turned. Abraham, in addition to the sheep and oxen, notice in verse 28, he set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is, excuse me, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, and this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore the place was called Beersheba. Now this conciliatory offering is interesting to me. Notice that there's seven lambs. Now the number seven is telling, it's significant in Scripture, often refers to complete or to fulfillment. So there's a sufficient, you could say, perhaps conciliatory offering or sacrifice that is provided for Abraham. And at first you're like, I'm not sure I understand this. If Abraham is the one who is sinned against, why is he providing the offering? Now, as I was pondering that this week, it suddenly hit me. We have something of a gospel picture here, do we not? Think about it. The gospel is pictured in this instance. Though Abimelech is the guilty party, his men unjustly stole You know, at the threat of violence, this well that Abraham's men had dug. So, though Abimelech is the guilty party, and Abraham is the one sinned against, nevertheless, Abraham, the significant covenant son, himself provides the offering that will settle the terms and establish the relationship on good standing once again with him and Abimelech. Does this not foreshadow Jesus? Jesus, our Lord the ultimate covenant son. The son of Abraham, as Matthew calls him, he offers himself as the offering to put us in good standing with the Lord, though we are the ones who sinned against him. Quite a powerful shadow here, quite a powerful prefiguring and anticipation of gospel realities to come. And this is in part why these accounts are given for us in the scriptures. They're written down so that we can see that the redemptive work that God was engineering, and even these types and shadows, these patterns, these prefigurings, and this typology, and the significance of these stories was building to a crescendo. There would come a covenant son through the lineage of David who would provide an offering for us. And in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, we can have reconciliation so that those who were once enemies with the Lord And he, the victim of our crimes of sin against him, so to speak, would offer the very sacrifice that would put us in right standing with him again. In this sense, Abraham offers something of a picture of gospel reconciliation, where a sinner and the Almighty, the suzerain and the vassal, the greater and lesser party, can be reconciled. And so they did. Verse 31. That place, therefore, became known as Beersheba, which, as I mentioned, means the well of the covenant or the well of seven, referring to the covenant price, the seven U lambs. And Abimelech and Phicol, by the way, Phicol is an office term, historians think, that refers to general. And Abimelech is also a common name for a king. Think of Pharaoh in Egypt, Abimelech in his region, similar names. So we have these two office holders, these two worldly authorities, they return to their land of their dwelling. But what does Abraham do? In conclusion of our message, we note the last action that he takes in verse 33. Abraham planted a, ta- a tamarisk, uh, tamarisk. tamarisk, sorry. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God." So in this definitive alliance moment, it's marked by a role reversal. It's uh, marked by this conciliatory offering, offering, the seven new lambs. And then it closes with public worship. This is Abraham repenting. This is the one-time fearful man who disguised his identity, now returning to his call from Genesis 12 to be a light and a blessing to the nations. In full view of the inhabitants of Gerar, he no doubt builds an altar and offers sacrifices to the Lord, the Eternal One. He does this not just marked by an altar, no doubt, but by planting a tree. The thing about a tree is that it takes a while before you appreciate its size and so forth. You have to have faith to to plant a tree that it would be a meaningful task. I think it was in 2003, I took a shovel and a wheelbarrow to the back of my property, and I dug up a bunch of balsam pines that were just seedlings that had sprouted in the woods. And I took them and I moved them down to the end of my driveway and I did two rows. And if you uh, drive to my place now, you'll see that some of them, I'll bet you, are 30 feet tall. It took a while, but each year these trees grew. So that action that I took with the wheelbarrow and the shovel yielded a whole hedgerow of trees that can be appreciated now. And some of my children never knew those trees as little like this. So in this analogy, you can see something of the significance of what Abraham was doing. If you plant a tree as a memorial, you have faith that this significant event will be appreciated by generations to come. Those of Abraham in the future, those who would inhabit Beersheba, which would be the southern border of the eventual inheritance land of Abraham himself, could go to this well that was named for the swearing of an oath, according to God's terms, according to the authority invested in Abraham, with an unbeliever. Abraham was a light to him. And next to it, a tree, perhaps a grove, that testified to the long-term blessings that God would accomplish through his covenant. By these means, Abraham, a man of faith, testified to the glory of the everlasting God, Yahweh himself. And as he did so, he proclaimed as a blessing to the foreign nations that there is salvation in only one in Jesus Christ eventually, who would be the son of the son of the son of the son of the promised one, Isaac, and so forth. And in so doing, even a pagan king bowed before the power of God evident through his covenant called one. So as we see this, we get a better picture, do we not, of what's going on. And let us close just in noting this application. If Abraham had, all of these, had these resources from which to draw confidence and strength, upon the birth of Isaac, how much more resources, how many more resources do we have that we can draw strength and faith from, recognizing that Jesus Christ, the true covenant son, has been born. Not only has Jesus been born, but he's been raised from the dead, and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he ever rules, putting his enemies in subjection under his feet, and the call for you and me is to live like it. And if you've been living like a prisoner and like a subject to uh, illegitimate authority. Recognize who you truly are. Revisit your identity in Christ and begin to proclaim, as Abraham did, even in your public declaration of worship, that Jesus is Lord. And there's coming a day, sooner than you would think, where every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And this is what it means to live in covenant faithfulness for us, heirs of Abraham, looking to the example of those who've gone before and even more looking to the ultimate ultimate covenant son, Jesus Christ, born in time, resurrected and ascended and ruling at the right hand of the Father. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the perspective that your scriptures give us to show us the power and glory and authority of the message of the gospel and all of the characters and all of the events and all of the details that you sovereignly and beautifully engineered to accomplish your will and purposes. I pray that as we look to Christ through the preaching of your word, Lord, as we look to him through the songs that we have sung and through our prayer and through our devotion time this week, that you would encourage us in our witness, that we might be more bold to proclaim even publicly, the worship of Jesus Christ, our Lord. For those in the hearing of this message who may not have bowed and submitted to the true King of Kings, I pray that they would hear in this message a command to do so or else. And as the clear proclamation of the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ, King of Kings, comes to their ears, I pray that they would cry out, what must I do to be saved? Repent of their sin. Place faith in Christ and join his conquering army as his ambassadors realizing his blood saves them and the message and the gospel and the commission that he gives us is the greatest privilege of all in this time that you have ordained that we shine for you and like abraham be a blessing as far as you give us opportunity to the nations thank you lord for the great legacy that we have in the covenant that you have ordained from before time began and executed throughout history. Thank you that your purposes are unfolding even to our day of your great salvation. Help us to live like it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.